challenges, which were basically areas where uh, very, very extensive poverty, uh, work, labor, we would call them like labor camps. They literally were like that. They would come and stay and make bricks and uh, we would share the gospel. I'll share one quick story before we look at scripture. Uh, we went there, we had a number of our people from our church, eight from our church went. My daughter was able to go with me, which was a unique opportunity for her to see a third world country in extreme poverty. And uh, what was amazing about that is that the people were so receptive. Some of the places we went, believe it or not, we asked the question, have you ever heard the name Jesus Christ? And they said, no. They never had heard the name Jesus Christ. So I immediately started the approach from Acts 17, where Paul was talking to the ones that had idol worship everywhere. I mean, these were Hindus worshiping millions of gods. Uh, and at the same time, they had never heard the name of Jesus. So you're preaching the gospel from the ground up, starting with God as creator all the way up and that he's the only God. So we did that, and at one of the uh, times in the villages, there was a young lady, uh, I say young, she was probably middle-aged, she had children. The translator came up to me and says, she was saved. I was really kind of taken back. I was shocked. I was like, really? She was saved? She says she has repented of her idols. And man, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like First Thessalonians, you know, where Paul was talking about they turned from their idols to serve the one true and living God. I was getting really excited, man. I thought we ought to set up a church right here. But it was just amazing the power of the gospel in that. I mean, I'll be, I'll be straight with you. I was shocked. I thought, you know, they don't even know what world I'm saying. They don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But God had already worked through her. She came in with her family to work in those brickyards. And when, when I say brickyards, you're talking making brick with your hands. And uh, it's incredibly hard work. But pray for that. It's an extensive ministry through our church, and we're working through that to see other people come into the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what I would like to do today is take you to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We are going through the book of Romans in our church, and we're now in chapter 12. And I'm going to be talking about verses 3 through 5, really verse 3. I'm going to kind of fill you in on some things we discussed in verse 1 and 2 in the last three sermons we had at our church. But tonight, or this afternoon, I would like to talk about don't think so highly of yourself. And this is found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. I'll read verses 3 through 5 for our hearing of the word of God. The Bible says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members of one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And I'll be up front to you right now and say that I'm sorry about my voice. It may last, it may not. I've been sick this past week with the bug that probably you people sent down from Rock Hill to us. So, nevertheless, we're working through it. So here we are in a text that is extremely practical for all of us, especially in the context of our culture, right, which is, which is self-centeredness in many, many ways. Humility often escapes us in our culture, even in the church. And humility is one of the most needed yet difficult and easily evasive virtues of, Christian, of the Christian life. And the opposite is also true. Pride is the easiest and most accessible and yet most destructive of all attitudes in the Christian life. 
Nothing can be so beautiful than to have a church that is full of people who have genuine, true humility. But also nothing can be so ugly as to have a church full of people with spiritual pride. Our sinful nature, as we all know, kind of caters to ourself. We are more inclined to be prideful than we are to be humble. There's no doubt about that. We resist humility and selflessness. I don't know if you want to fill your mind with any of these kind of facts, but here's a couple of useless facts that you can store in your short-term memory. First of all, I read an article this past week that said 92 million selfies are taken every day in America alone. And also that about seven of those are done every minute. And I also read an article that said people are literally dying to take selfies. And that's a literal death because in 2008 to July 2021, it is estimated that 379 people died taking a selfie. (laughs) I would encourage you not to do that. It's just not worth it. Just look in the mirror. You'll be fine. Evil, of course, as we all know, entered this whole universe through pride. Did you know that? That's how it came. It came through pride. Paul told told Timothy that in order for leadership to serve in the church, they should not be novices, that is, new believers, because, verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3 says, they could be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation of the devil. And that reminds us of the the reason why we have sin in this world because of the condemnation of the devil. The entryway of sin into this universe was through self-exaltation. It was not through humility. It was through a being that we all know as Lucifer who was clearly a ranking, high-ranking angel, many believed to be stupendously beautiful and capable of amazing power, And yet, as he began to reflect upon his own personal creation, he saw himself, if not as good as God, but at least better than God. In Isaiah 14, we have the account that many believe to be a reference to the fall of Lucifer. It says in Isaiah 14, 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the most high. Sounds a lot like Stephen Furtick to me. Be honest with you, I mean, this is something that is clearly indicative of how we ended up in the sinful condition we are in is because of our pride. The Bible is very, very clear. Many, many times it says that God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride, God says, and arrogance. In Proverbs eleven two, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. In Proverbs sixteen five, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. And in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the Bible even teaches us in James and other portions of the Bible that God is opposed to the proud. He will work against you if you are prideful. 
We studied the book of James not too many months ago, and in James chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter quotes that very same uh, phrase in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is no way to please God in any way. In fact, the way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted by God. You exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. That's a promise from God. It's an absolute from God. In Proverbs 18, 12, it says, Before the downfall of man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. And that introduces us to another very important point, that in order to worship God acceptably, to come into his presence, to be part of his kingdom, you enter in through humility. That's how you enter. In fact, it says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, that God is the one who dwells in a high and lofty place. He says this, I live in a high and holy place, and also I live with him who is contrite and low in spirit. The ones who are with the Lord are the ones who are humble. The ones who are worshiping God are the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time. Isaiah 23, 9 says, The Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned in the earth. This is the way God has chosen to bring people into his kingdom through, literally, humility. That's the way in. In fact, it's the way that God desires to keep all of his ministers and servants in a state of humility. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, it talks about the Apostle Paul who was ministering in a church that was literally trying to work against him. There was a satanically devised conspiracy against his apostleship. That's what 2 Corinthians is written about. And Paul was dealing with people that were accusing him of the wrong motives, saying that he was in the ministry for the money, that he was in it for what he could get. And so Paul had to deal with this consistent attack against his ministry and his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul recounts the situation where he was taken up into the third heaven to receive great revelation from God. In fact, it says in that text that he'd received things from God that could not be spoken. It was such an amazing event, though, that God said that he had given him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Now, the thorn in the flesh is called a messenger from Satan. Some believe that that was some kind of physical ailment. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe that was the satanically devised conspiracy against his apostleship. It's one thing to have a physical ailment, but it's one thing to also have a consistent work against your ministry which I can grant you was something that tormented him day and night. And he prayed for God's grace to deliver him from it. But God told him that my grace would be sufficient for you. In fact, he said in his weakness, God's power would be made perfect. The point was, is that God was going to keep Paul humble. He had received so much revelation, so much instruction, so much from God that in order to keep him where he needed to be, God gave him the thorn in the flesh. So God's going to do a great work sometimes to keep us there. And that's exactly what he desires for us to have in Romans chapter 12, to have the right kind of thinking in our ministry. Now, I want to give you a little heads up because we've been in Romans now for probably a few years. 
But now we're coming to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the application of the doctrines of salvation in chapter 1 through 11. Paul has spent great, great detail going through how you and I are saved by the grace of God through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we've been delivered, delivered from the wrath of God, even though we at one time were enemies of him, and that we are secure in Christ and that nothing can separate us from the love of God and in Christ. And so now he's going to tell us how we take all of that great doctrine of salvation and apply it in our lives. It should not be something that's just purely academic. If that's all salvation is to you, then you have missed what salvation is. The reason why he spends literally 11 chapters on the whole doctrine of salvation is so that you properly understand how you should respond to Christ in service. So that's why he starts off in chapter 12, verse 1, I beg you, therefore. In verse 1, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, therefore. Therefore what? Because of what I've just said in chapter 1 through 11. Because God has saved you. You were unworthy of salvation. You were justly deserving of his wrath. Yet God, by his grace, justified you and made you his own. So since that is the case, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is, you're not getting what you do deserve, which is hell, but God is giving you salvation. That's grace. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or your translation may be spiritual worship. Both are accurate translations of that text because your service to God is your worship to God. Your worship to God is your service to God. And see, we have to also remind ourselves of this, especially in the context of a church that may have a tendency toward more liturgy. I know in our end, we have a tendency to go that way. We have to be very careful to make sure that we understand our worship is service. It's not lighting candles and walking around in robes. It's service to Christ. And not only just any service, but absolute, wholehearted, unreserved, 100% commitment. That's why he talks about a living sacrifice. He doesn't want you dead right now. He wants you alive. To come to Christ, you have to be willing to die. But once you're willing to die and you're saved, stay alive. And serve him. Serve him as a living sacrifice. It's like what one pastor said one time. You know, to be a living sacrifice is a lot different than what a lot of people think about. They think about it as a donation. He said, when it comes to breakfast, a chicken gives a donation. A pig makes a sacrifice. That's what he's wanting. He wants all of you. He didn't want half of you. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. In this text, in verse 1 and 2, he not only talks about the, bo the, the body, he also talks about the actual will and the mind. He wants everything. He gave his all for you. He saved you from the wrath that you and I deserved. So now he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is a monumental devotion. In fact, I said this this morning in our church, the church should never lack for servants. It should never lack for servants. It should be more like, okay, listen, we've got so many people who want to serve. What do we do with them all? Instead, as is the case even today, it seems like that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's been pretty much consistent for many years. It should not be that way at all. We should be living sacrifices, wholly devoted to Christ. Now, years ago, Chuck Swindoll once said, it's the tough thing about being a living sacrifice is we often crawl back, out, back off the altar. But we need to stay on it. Stay committed, devoted, 
completely. Verse 2 tells us how we do it, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. By the way, this renewing of the mind here in verse 2 is the phraseology that R.C. Sproul got his radio ministry from, renewing the mind. His approach to ministry, as you all probably know, was to address the thinking, the mind. That's why you find such very strong academic work in R.C. Sproul's ministry, because he understood the necessity of the transformation of the human mind. You and I are affected by the world around us all the time, by what we listen to, by what we watch, by what we read, whether it's in the context of evangelicalism or not, we're affected by it. So we have to be careful to make sure that we're not allowing the world and the things in the world or the world, which is the word age, this time frame in which we live, this present age, to squeeze us into its image. And this is happening all around us. There are churches right here in this block that have been affected by the ideology of the world. They have adopted thinking that is unbiblical because they want to conform to the ideologies of the world. And you and I are under that same pressure. Your children, as they grow, will be under that same pressure. If they go to universities and colleges, enormous pressure will be put on them to recant the things they believe and to embrace the world's philosophy. You and I have to make sure that we are, <clears throat> that we are indeed having our minds transformed and changed radically by the word of God. That's his point. That's what he desires to have for all of us. That our minds be renewed, transformed, changed. The word transform comes from the Greek word metamorphosis. Now, I think all of us remember that, right? You remember as a child, you, you, remember, you remember the actual, uh, I'm sorry, my voice is going. My sermon usually lasts for two hours. I'll cut it back. The word transform. When you were a child, and I'm sure I remember this specifically, the amazing nature of the transformation of the caterpillar into the butterfly, right? Here you have this ugly-looking little creature crawling along the leaves, and all of a sudden it makes this pot. It stays in for a little while, and then it blossoms out into this beautiful butterfly. That kind of transformation is what he's talking about here. We're not talking about just changing a few things. We're talking about a radical transformation. Our minds, our thinking, biblically speaking, should be so radically different than the world that we stand out like the butterfly does. We shouldn't be anywhere like it. We shouldn't look like it. We shouldn't act like it. We shouldn't talk like it. We shouldn't sing like it. I like what MacArthur says about the hymns, like the grace hymnal we have. He said, these are our songs. This is not the world's songs. These are our songs. This is what we sing about. We sing about redemption. We sing about salvation. We sing about the grace of God and the work of Christ in our lives. That's what we sing about. They're our songs. Our minds are being transformed, and that's what he desires for us to have. Now, this transformation, by the way, is going to lead to some very practical commands given in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the book of Romans. In fact, you cannot obey, and you cannot fully uh, be submissive to what Paul calls on us to do in those chapters unless verse 1 and 2 are accomplished. Because what he's asking for is the opposite kind of thinking that the world has. Let me just show you what I mean. What is he calling on us to do? Well, verse 3, look at it, Romans 12, 3. He says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. 
right out the gate, right at the very beginning, we're the opposite of our culture. Because that's everything about the culture. We are to think highly about ourselves. In fact, as it says in Timothy, I believe it is, that men will be lovers of themselves in the last days. Everything in our culture feeds the exaltation of ourselves. Whether we go to work is for the promotion of self. Whether we buy a house is for the promotion of self. Whether we try to get more education is for the promotion of self. It's all about what you can get, what you can fulfill yourself with. It's all about you. And that's being fed more and more and more, especially in our internet age in which we live. But here he's telling us right at the very beginning that our thinking should be completely the opposite of the way the world thinks. Then he goes on a little further. Look at it with me. Verse 9 and following. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine, biblical love. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's again not part of the ideology of the world. This is selflessness, not self-centeredness. Look at verse 14. It even gets more complicated because the world doesn't understand this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. I mean, I'd just give you a, a good example. You go out here. When you leave tonight, just get behind someone and lay on the horn for a few moments. See what happens. See how they respond to you. Now, what's interesting, when we were over in India, <laughs> there are no traffic laws. There are no traffic lights. There's no stop signs. There's no lines in the road. And everybody just drives everywhere. And what is interesting is the horn is the main way of being polite. Everybody honks their horn to let you know that you're beside them. Don't run over them. You have to avoid the cows and the dogs and the donkeys and the monkeys. They're all in the street, too, along with hundreds of people on motorcycles and mopeds. But everybody's honking the horn politely, believe it or not, even in a Hindu culture, they're polite. And they're honking the horns all the time to make sure you know where they are. You come over here, it's the total opposite of that. You honk your horn, people get out and want to bless you out in a bad way. So he says, but we are to bless those who persecute us, those who do harm to us, those who accuse us, those who act against us. We are to bless, that is to speak well of those who do that. That is contrary to everything you hear in our culture. He says also in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Thank you, brother. I'm getting all kind of good stuff here. This is really good. He says, do not, verse 16, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. That's not the way the world teaches us, right? Get with the most popular people. Be with the people who are going up and up. Don't go down with the people who are low and are not successful and don't have all the things of the world. He says, don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 17, have regard for what is good in the sight of all men. You can read on and on and on in that text and you see clearly things that are opposite the way the culture would think. Here's another one, chapter 13, verse 1. Something that's hard for us to even uh, put our minds around. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And that wasn't a government at that time that was sympathetic toward Christianity, was it? Of course not. It even gets worse. <laughs> Romans 13, 6. And because of this, also pay your taxes. All right? 
In other words, as a Christian, you and I are to be honest and pay our due. What God expects of us to do is to be honest and to pay our taxes. It's contrary to what you're even taught or expected in the culture we're in. Being dishonest and kind of manipulating your taxes and doing things like that is considered and expected to be normal. In chapter 15, he goes on and talks about how you and I ought to bear with others who are weak. And listen to this in the verse 1 of chapter 15, not to please ourselves. But if we could get that one verse down, just that one by itself, there would be no disunity in the church. None. Solves it all. All of these commandments require complete, total devotion to Jesus Christ. You have to be a living sacrifice, having your mind and your heart radically transformed by biblical data. You have to be in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit, who will enable you to kill the deeds of the flesh that arise all the time while submitting yourself clearly to the commandments of the Word of God. Now, in order for us to understand that, we have to understand what the root of all of this is. In order to be what Paul's calling us to be in this text, we have to understand the key. And the key is found in verse 3. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. That is the word humility. Humility. So how do we understand humility? Well, I could give you a bunch of definitions that would probably help you a little bit with that. But I really don't want to go that route. I want to show you biblically the way we should think about humility. And the first would be this. We need to understand humility in our origination. Secondly, we need to understand our humility in our obligation. Third, we need to understand our humility in our operation. Let's look at it in our origination. Now, what I mean by that is this. In order to properly understand humility, you have to understand what God did for you when he saved you. All right, this is absolutely foundational, key to everything. Now, in the verse we have in chapter 12, verse 3, Paul begins by saying, for I say through the grace given to me, and some conclude that he's talking about salvation there, the grace given to me. Actually, in that verse, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the grace given to him in the sense of service and apostleship. He already talked about the grace given to him in salvation in the first 11 chapters. He spent 11 chapters talking about how God had saved him and delivered him and how the, the, the gospel itself and his salvation is foundational to his whole reaction and service to Christ. So that's, in, that's critical, right, to understand that. And a person who is truly saved, all right, a person who is truly saved and has been in salvation even for some time understands what it is to be truly hum humble at least for a few moments. Because whenever you're saved, you're brought to the bottom. You don't come into, you don't come into salvation by pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, or coming with a bunch of baggage of achievements. Every person I've ever talked to that I believe is genuinely converted literally reached the bottom. God brought them all the way down so that they fully recognized their own sinfulness and the right of God to pour out his wrath on them. And then they cry out for mercy. That's where God takes all of us. In fact, you remember this in, in uh, Matthew 5, 3. Jesus begins the first sermon we have recorded for him preaching. He says, blessed are the poor 
in spirit. He wasn't talking about the ones that are poor financially. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those that are poor spiritually. And the word he uses for poor or poverty there is the absolute lowest possible rung of poverty. We would call it bankrupt poor. Have nothing at all, at all. When we were out at, um, in India, we went to one of the villages one evening, and it was considered a tribal village. Uh, the, the village was interesting. We ended up there late at night, long drive, exhausting. I can remember that for sure. We got there to share the gospel with these children and the people of the village. And I was struck by the absolute extreme poverty. I had never seen extreme poverty like that physically, personally, except maybe in some kind of video or something like that. The women, uh, grown women, I could have easily bundled up into a little ball and held, held them right here, just that, that small. They were so malnourished. The children were obviously malnourished. They were as poor as you could get. I mean, just the basic necessities they had. Basic, basic necessities. And I just was struck by that because that's exactly what God expects of us to do to come into the kingdom. We are to reach the point of extreme poverty where we have nothing to claim, nothing to hold on to, nothing that is recognizable as an achievement that we have, no righteousness, nothing at all. Now, there's a couple of passages I want you to look at with me to show you this kind of humility. Look at Luke chapter 18 with me. Luke chapter 18. And we'll look at verse 9 through 27. Now, these are very familiar to you because I know you know them, but I want to just uh, emphasize a couple of things about these three accounts here given to us by our Lord. The first one is of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The second one is of children coming to Jesus. And the third is of the, of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus asking how he may have eternal life. All three of these accounts given to us are examples of what it takes to come into the kingdom, which is true, genuine biblical humility all right this is the foundation so let's just look at it this is luke 18 verse 9 also it says he spoke a parable to some of them who trusted in themselves that refers to the pharisees that they were righteous and despised others and jesus gives the parable two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself god i thank you that i am not like other men these extortioners and unjust adulterers and even this tax collector over here. He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now the tax collector, by the way, which would have been one of the most despised people on the planet at that time, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, what Jesus is teaching us here, among many things, is that humility is a requirement for salvation. In other words, true, genuine humility that is brought about not because you're just making yourself humble, but because you have a full and complete and honest admission and confession of your sinfulness. Pharisee wouldn't do that. 
He was self-righteous, full of himself, compared himself to other people. The tax collector, the only thing he could see was his own wretchedness in the sight of God. That's all he could see. He couldn't see anything else. He wasn't looking at other men. He wasn't looking at other standards. He wasn't looking at his achievements. He wasn't looking at what he could do or how many times he visited the synagogue. He said, I am a wretched sinner. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Unworthy to look at God at all. So humility starts with a recognition of your own sinfulness. You see, by the way, this is one of the problems we have in our culture where we redefine sin, so therefore people can't see their own sinfulness. I remember it's been probably a couple of years ago now whenever the whole social justice stuff started up and it took me, I know David and I talked about it for about a year, it took about a year for us to put our mind around what was going on with that nonsense. But then I remember specifically that John MacArthur said this statement, he said, one of the greatest threats to the gospel of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ is this social justice critical race theory. And I thought, how can he say that? How can it be the worst possible threat that's ever come against the church? And then he preached four messages from Ezekiel about how you and I are all guilty for our own sin, not the sin of our fathers. Did a wonderful job with that. But one of the things that really kind of zeroed in on this was, he said, listen, whenever you teach this kind of stuff, critical race and so forth, what you're doing is making everybody a victim. And nobody's a victimizer. So there's no perpetrators anymore of sin. We're all victims of sin. And if you do that, you eliminate the need for the gospel. Nobody needs to get saved because we're all victims, right? And that was the point that is being made here. Whenever you eliminate the offense of sin, then you eliminate the entrance to heaven. You can't do that. That's why what is so dramatically sad about the culture in which we live where the churches are clown shows, circuses. I was not shocked, honestly, to see what happened this past week with the Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, these churches are incredibly dishonoring to God that you would take the Bible and kick it like a football. Are you incredibly stupid or what? What in the world are you thinking? Now, this is the kind of place we're in because sin has been diminished and downplayed and regarded really in many ways funny. Something to participate in rather than to avoid. Something to joke about rather than to repent of. And I'll be honest with you, this is the problem with a lot of evangelicalism because we're not seeing converts to Christ because we have shut down the entrance. We've closed the door. Righteous people don't go into heaven. Unrighteous people are the ones who get saved. People who know they're sinful. So that's the beginning point. Humility has to be understood in the context of an admission of our own wretchedness. Secondly, we find another example of humility found in verse 15 and following. Same text, Luke 18 in verse 15. It says, Then they also brought infants to him that he might bless them or touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, little children, he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, just so you know, he's not saying that whenever you get to heaven, there's going to be 45 million babies crawling around heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that they are of that kind of character. People who make up the kingdom 
are of the same character as the baby or the infant or the child. In verse 17, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. So the first is humility of sinfulness, right? You have to understand your own sinfulness. This one is different because now he's talking about a child who comes to Jesus. And by the way, the first word that is used in this text, which is translated in mine, infants, is correct because it's the Greek word brephos. It means a baby, a newborn baby. In fact, it's also used in the context of uh, Luke 1 uh, and uh, I think Matthew 1 and 2 where it talks about that uh, they had babies still, they were pregnant with child, they were with child. So the brephos inside the mother's womb or outside the mother's womb are both the same thing. God doesn't see a difference between the baby inside the womb or outside the womb. We make a difference in our culture. God says, no, they're all the same. So in this text, he's telling us this infant was brought to Jesus. This would be no doubt probably a baby as we would think of it as a baby. But then it goes on and says that Jesus responds, let the little children come. This is a different Greek word. This is the word paideia. We get the word pediatrics from it. It means basically infant to toddler. This is a small child. This is the kind of child that is still very much dependent upon mom and dad for everything, right? He's not going to make decisions. He's not going to make some job improvements. He's not going to go out and seek you know, some kind of advancement. He has no achievements to speak of, nothing that he can say, hey, look what I did. He has done nothing. <laughs> he has nothing to point to, and he's totally dependent upon his parents for everything. And what Jesus is saying is this, unless you become like that child, you'll never enter into the kingdom. What is he talking about? You have to be totally dependent upon Christ. Totally dependent upon and trusting Jesus alone for everything. You have nothing to offer. Just like the baby has nothing to offer, like the child has nothing to offer, but he has to totally give himself 100% to the, to the uh, mom and dad to take care of him. So you have to do the same. So true humility starts, first of all, with a recognition of our own sinfulness. Secondly, true humility is an expression of absolute dependence on God. If you think you've got it because you have it, you've missed it because you never had it to begin with. The point is, is this, everything you and I have, everything, everything we have is a gift from God. There's nothing you can point to, nothing you can look at, nothing you can say, hey, look at what I did, that you can't say, ultimately, God gave me that. Everything. That is so critical to understand. There's a third example of humility given to us in the text. And again, there's a lot here in this, but I just point out the point of humility. This is the rich young ruler in verse 18. He comes to Jesus and he says this, Good teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? Jesus quotes to him a number of commandments. What does he respond by saying in verse 21? All these things I have kept from my youth. Guess what? He lied. Nobody's kept all of those from his youth. There's not a single person walking this planet that's ever done that. In fact, Jesus, in his own words in the Sermon on the Mount, made it very clear that they, that is the Pharisees and the Jewish people of his day, made all the commandments external. But there was a lot of corruption on the inside. This young ruler believed he was right with God because externally he had done these things 
and had kept these commandments externally. Jesus went on to rebuke him in verse 22. He says, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He points to his one idol, which is obviously his possessions. And the point I want to bring up here is this. If you'll notice in verse 18 and verse 21 and verse 22, there's a couple of words here that I want to just make note of. He says in verse 20, or verse 18 rather, the rich man asked, what shall I do? What shall I do? And then in verse 21, all these things I have kept. And then also in verse 22, again, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have. And in this context, what we find is this. This man did not understand his inability to save himself. He couldn't save himself, but he thought he could. He says, I've done this. I've done that. I have this. And God says, no. He says, no, you don't. You don't have the ability to save yourself. All of your achievements, all of your record keeping of the commandments you've done, all these things that you believe you have done do not serve you at all for salvation. You do not have the ability to save yourself as what Jesus declares to this man. In fact, later on, if you remember in the text, uh, Jesus says how hard it is for those who are rich to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying it's possible for a rich man to squeeze through the eye of a needle. He's calling for impossibility here. It is literally impossible for this man to be saved. Why? Because he does not recognize his inability. He thinks he has something in himself to offer. He thinks he can give. He thinks he can do. And that's why the disciples respond, who then can be saved? <laughs> the point is, nobody can be saved if it's up to you. If it's up to us, we're not getting there. True humility comes from a recognition of our own sinfulness. It comes from a recognition of our own dependence on God. And it comes from a recognition that we don't have any ability to save ourselves. You see, if we don't start there, folks, we don't have humility. People go for all kinds of resources to try to help themselves understand true biblical humility, but it really is founded in those understandings. It's foundational to our conversion. If you truly understand salvation, then you will understand what humility is. In fact, as far as I know, and I've said this already, but I'll mention it again, whenever someone comes to conversion to Christ, whenever they are truly converted, at that moment in their life, they experience what it is to be truly humble in the sight of God. Everything is completely eliminated, all achievements, all abilities, all acknowledgments, and yet what you're left with is this plate full of sin. And you see it for what it really is. The Spirit of God convicts you, and he brings you down to a place where you're savable. No one goes into heaven with baggage on their side. Jesus said it's a narrow gate. It's a narrow gate for a reason. It's narrow because you're not coming in with anything you have. You're not coming in with your own abilities, your own achievements, your own religion, your own baptism. You're not coming in with anything you've ever done or could do. What you have to do is renege or rather respond in repentance to all of those things and understand that you will never enter into salvation with pride or arrogance, self-righteousness, or self-centeredness. True humility is the way in. True humility is the way in. 
There's much more I could say about that. And what Paul is driving home for us is this, in the context of verse 3 through 5, is that the true, what we call body life of the church, occurs in the context of true humility. In other words, if we're going to serve God the way we're supposed to, if we're going to be part of the body of Christ the way we're supposed to, it has to start with the foundation of humility. You can't think of yourself more important than others. You can't consider yourself higher than others. You can't think of yourself more lofty than you should. You should have the same mind in you that Christ had in him whenever he came to this earth and he set aside his own glory in heaven and humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a slave and died on the cross obediently to the Father. That's what he's calling for us to do. Each one of us in this church body, every one of us here today, if we truly understand our position in salvation, recognize that we have literally nothing to offer apart from the grace of God. But that doesn't mean we have nothing to offer because God, by his grace, has gifted us and given us positions and places of service in the body of Christ. It should not paralyze us. It should infuse us with fuel to serve Christ. And I'm afraid that too often we, we have a tendency, as even the Corinthians did, we, we kind of highlight the most public gifts and we kind of look, look at that guy, look at what he does. He's so gifted. Look at what he's able to do for the kingdom of God. And we forget about all the others that are serving in the background that are just important that keep the body going. As Paul said in Corinthians, he says, listen, if the eye is not the foot, does that mean the foot doesn't matter? He's talking about if everything was the eye, then nothing would matter anymore. Nothing would work. But if we have the foot, the eye, the ear, the hand, and all of us work together, we're able to accomplish everything. But it comes from a recognition that we are truly recipients of the grace of God. That we're recipients of the grace of God. I want to close with a passage over in 1 Corinthians. So if you'll turn there with me, I want to show you this. While you turn there, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> the Bible tells us that every single person in the body of Christ has been placed there sovereignly by him. According to his own pleasure. He did it that way because it brings the most glory to himself. Had it been any other way that could have brought more glory, it would have changed. But this is the way it is. And so God has designed it that way. The person who has the gift of ministry, the gift of giving, the gift of service, the gift of prophecy in the sense of speaking forth the word of God, every person has a gift that God has given them for the edification of the body so that ultimately in the end, God is pleased by what is done. There should never be a minimization of any gift in the body of Christ that accomplishes edification for the truth and for the body itself. But if we're all conducting ourselves in the context of humility and recognizing that everything that we do and everything that we have comes from God, then we'll do it in the way that honors the Lord. Let me show you what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is an amazing text. In fact, I go to this text so often to remind myself of who I am in Christ and also to keep myself in check. Uh, and there's a reason why I say that, because in a position that I'm in as a pastor, and Mark can understand this too, David also, there's an easy opportunity for you to get all the accolades. The good thing about being a pastor is people say, thank you for the teaching of the Word of God, Pastor, but the other side of it, they tell you when they don't like it either, too. That's the other side of the story. But it's easy to get filled with pride. It's easy to get a little arrogant to think, hey, you know, I'm indispensable to the body of Christ. And uh, I know I shared in our church this morning, uh, MacArthur's church out there in California, their, 
They're all about who's going to take the place of John. I mean, he hasn't even died yet, and they're trying to replace the guy. And so, you know, they're all about who's going to take the place of John, who's going to take the place of John. And all I can say is, listen, God has his man. He already has planned it long ago, even before the world ever began. This is not going to be a surprise to God, and I can grant you, listen to this carefully, the church will not stop when John goes to heaven. It didn't stop when R.C. Sproul left. It didn't stop when James Montgomery Boyce left. It didn't stop when Martin Luther left. It didn't stop when Paul the Apostle left. And nothing's going to stop it, right? Thank you, Lord. Amen. The point is, is that God's going to have his purpose and his plan with his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it at all. And we have to be careful to think that we're the only one that matters. We are replaceable. Once we get that under our minds, in our minds, we really understand where we are in the kingdom of God. We are replaceable. I remember whenever my, my dad died, 2007, February of 2007, and it was kind of a shock to us. We weren't expecting him to pass away. He had an operation in the hospital, and things went bad, and he ended up passing away. He was a Christian, so I know he's with the Lord. But I can remember within a week of that, I was sitting in the living room with my mother, and my mom said, you know what the weird thing is about your dad's death? I said, what's that? She goes, the world just keeps going on. And it does. You know, you begin to think, you know, well, what, what are we going to do without him? Well, it just keeps going on and on. And see, the church is going to keep going on and on too. And what we want to do is be faithful where God's put us at this time period. We are a vapor. We're here just for a little while, and then we're gone. But while we're here, we're going to be a faithful vapor. Right? We're going to do all our vaping we need to do and be as good as a good little steam as we can be, right? Best we can be. Listen to what Paul says. This is a good word to close on. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, right at the very beginning, that sounds really good, doesn't it? That almost sounds like the Apostle Paul's being a little prideful there. Hey, look at us. We're stewards. We're stewards of the mysteries of Christ. And when you consider us as servants of the Christ, consider this. We hold in our possessions the very mystery of Christ, the gospel. But actually, behind the words, it's a lot less prideful. In fact, it's an attitude of humility. Because the word translated here, servant, in verse 1, is not a common word that we often find in the New Testament, like the word diakonos. We have the word deacon, which is used for servant. There's the word doulos, which is sometimes translated uh, servant. In the, uh, the LSB, it's translated consistently slave, which is the right translation of the word. But the point is here that Paul doesn't use either one of those words. He uses the word huperetes. It's two words, huper and retes, which is under rower. That's what it means. It means an under rower. And what it was referring to, what it was used for originally was whenever there were the ships that had the three levels of rowing uh, men who rowed the boats, if you were under the bottom level, you were usually the first one to go whenever the water came into the bottom of the ship. You were chained there, and you were expected to do one thing. This is your only responsibility. Row. Row. That was your responsibility. You, you rowed the boat. You row, row, row. That's what you did. And you were to be faithful in doing that. That's what you were chained there for. And what Paul is telling us here is, is when a man considers us, as under rowers, not apostles, not apostles with capital A, not great men of God, but under rowers. We're down here, we're doing what God's called us to do, and we're pulling our oar. That's what we're doing. 
It goes on and says, we're going to be faithful at it too, verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. There were people who were accusing him of wrong motives for serving Christ and his own apostleship and ministry. He says, I don't have any concern about what you think about me. The only one I'm concerned about is the one who really matters, which is Jesus Christ. And according to this text in verse, uh, verse 5 and 6, it talks about that Jesus will come and he will judge the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. That's the one who matters. So that's what he was concerned about. He wasn't concerned about what anybody else thought about him. He knew he was just a servant, a slave that was pulling his oar for the kingdom of God. And God would judge his motives. Now I want you to notice what it says in verse 6 and following. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now listen to verse 7, a verse you need to underline and memorize. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know what he's telling you? You are nothing apart from what God's grace gave to you. And there's no need to boast about what you have as if you have it without God. God's the only one who gave it to you. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have, God gave to us. Everything from the very first breath. From the very first formation of the cell in the womb, we are all a gift of God's grace. And we serve in humility, understanding that great work of grace in our hearts and minds. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we do ask that your spirit, who is the only one capable, Lord God, of helping us with this, to help us, Lord, to follow your word and not to think more highly above ourselves that we should. Lord, help us to have true humility that expresses itself in love for one another and care for the saints of God and overall a desire for your glory, not our own. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.